Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mana on the Rocks. It is I, Bald. Here joining me this week, as always, my co-host, Atlas. Hello, everybody. All right, this week, we got, I think, a pretty fun topic we got going on. Uh, we're talking about the card evaluation. So, everyone knows, in Commander, you can only play 99 cards, or 98 if you're one of them silly little partner commanders. Um, there's a fixed amount of slots you can run in the deck. Every single one of those matters. But how do you choose? How do you know what is the right cut and what is the wrong cut? Maybe it, maybe it's this, that, or the other thing. Maybe we need more tutors. Maybe we need more dorks. Maybe we need more counter magic. Maybe a lot of all this stuff. But why I know what isn't maybe is you should come on down, get a drink with us. So when when I say card evaluation, what do you what do you think of? I think generally it brings to mind some sort of idea of whether or not a card is good enough. Um, what does it accomplish in a list? How focused mm -hmm. is it? Uh, what what is the what is the overall thought process behind including this card, and how good is this card versus another in fulfilling that? Okay, I think that's what that's what card evaluation means to me. At least. Okay, yeah, and I think I think that's generally like decently understood in like broad term. Um, I think for CDH, we demand a lot out of our cards. Our I, our cards need to be quite simply the best. Like that's that's kind of the idea of this this side of the format is our cards. We get to play a lot of really good cards, uh, and sometimes I feel like there's there's almost too much. Um, every single time I build a deck, I feel like I end up baking my initial list like 105, 110 cards, and then it's just pure agony to get that number down. Yeah, because we have a huge card pool to select from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a ginormous card pool, and like with with a vintage deep card pool, so we have nearly every card in Magic's history. And then of the playables, there are so many playables. There are so 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 many playables uh, that it's it's really hard to narrow it down a lot of the time. Uh, I mean, I think back to like some of the earlier lists or like even earlier iterations. Like I'm I'm cutting cards recently that I like. You, if you told me six months ago like you'd be cutting this card, I I wouldn't believe you. Um, like nature's claim um for example uh recently cut that from not blood pod uh and my my reasoning for it was there wasn't a single artifact or enchantment that i care about that my other removal spells quite simply don't hit um and i think that's a very interesting place to get to when it comes to card evaluation is like if you have enough overlap you start considering okay what's the weakest card that's in that like overlapping pool so, uh, for example, in my in that removal suite, I have things like Abrupt Decay and Assassin's Trophy and Soul Partition and Touch the Spirit Realm. Uh, and then, like, for creature removals, like, I also have, like, Deadly Rollick. Like, I have a lot of removal at my disposal. So, Nature's Claim ends up being the most narrow. It's efficient, don't get me wrong. It kills any artifact enchantment for one mana with virtually no downside. Uh, oh, there's also Besage you in the mana base as well. So, there's an additional removal spell still in there. Um, that I just... It didn't feel like it was necessarily. It didn't have like a a a go to target for it. Whereas like any of the other cards that I named, I can think of go to targets for it, and it just ends up being like the weakest one because it's because it is so narrow in its use cases. I think it's funny that you slight uh, you pointed out nature's claim because that's a card I sliced out of my list a while back as well for the same reason is that in the number of situations that you encounter in the format where you range anything from red white aggro hate bear stacks to like super hyper f 
fast, very focused, five-color, like, turn-to-nos-piled lists. Um, there's such a wide variety of different things, that different permanents that need to be mm -hmm. removed, that that one mana, um, focusing in on... Uh, focusing on artifacts or enchantments sometimes isn't quite good enough. Like, sometimes it's... Because we have so many ways of getting to two mana uh, on turn one, or three mana on turn two, or something along those lines... Um, sometimes it is just more efficient to play a two mana removal spell that sweeps out whatever you need it to get, whether it, that be an artifact, a creature, an enchantment, a planeswalker. So, and that sees things like assassin's trophy, abrupt decay, soul partition, those types of things start to come into the mix. And then we can also talk about um, the utility of channel cards, where when in a format where grand abolishers and silences are the king. Uh, the ability to activate your stuff into that in order to be able to interact with an opponent is really, really strong. Mm. And especially like those additional like channel cards, like I think of like Twin Shot Sniper almost and Touch the Spirit Realm to some degree, although I think Touch the Spirit Realm is nearly staple to me, I think. Uh, the card is just very, very good. Uh, that I wouldn't necessarily consider it in like main it wouldn't be like a first draft consideration like when i when i first construct a list i'm not tossing in twin shot sniper for example if we're like i'll just stick with that example but that's a card that i will think about adding a decent amount of time and like kind of track the amount of times like okay well like if there's already a card i'm considering taking out is that slot worth the slot of twin shot sniper because I, I feel like me and you especially gravitate around the idea of like there are these slots dedicated for these cards and these slots are either locked in up for grabs or in testing and i feel like is generally where we that, that's the pattern that i see when we talk about a lot of our uh a lot of our deck decisions is like the, i have these slots dedicated for x y and z yeah i think i think when i'm evaluating cards to cut card it's it basically boils down to for me what are the cards that i that i already am looking at adding so and what am i losing when i mm -hmm. cut a card so um going back to the nature's claim example when i cut out nature's claim i ended up i don't remember exactly what i pulled it out for but i do remember it, it doesn't matter because i do remember thinking to myself and having discussion with a couple of people, talking about it, the pros and the cons of each. Um, when I cut out Nature's Claim, was I more upset that I was going to be losing that extra removal spell for Artifacts and Enchantments, or was I happier that I, whatever I was adding was going to accelerate my win percentage or be able to interact better? And so for me, that's what it sort of boils down to in a lot of situations is whatever whatever i'm adding it doesn't have to be a one for one like i'm pulling a removal spell i'm going to add a removal spell that i think is better a lot of times it comes down to um this card i really want to add this card and this one two or three cards is underperforming or not doing exactly what i want it to any longer things like that and so and that really is what translates into my my cuts and my switches i don't I don't really typically think of cutting cards anymore because everything that's ever been in the list that like ever like since the first couple of iterations i started tracking it in like a considering mm -hmm. board and so anytime something comes out it gets pushed to there never gets cut anymore it's just not in the list mm -hmm. that's the way and so that's the way that i go with it when i'm focusing in on a deck and i'm trying to trying to track my changes across different metas and like 
different strategies and that I'm encountering and things like that that I have to deal with. Yeah, and I think I think that's something that a decent amount of us end up doing. I I, I do a decent amount. Like I I move things to like. Yeah, no, I move things to the considering board. I was going to say I move things to the sideboard, but I, in my list, anytime I make any sort of changes, like, it's always, like, this is, like, the thing, all the things that I've, like, t uh, tested and looked at in the past or even, like, considered, uh, considering board. Um, but, yeah, it ends up being, like, this really nice, like, repository for all the things, all the different ideas and stuff. And, again, like, it doesn't, like, a lot of this doesn't have to be, like, to interaction specifically. That's just, like, the, the most recent example that I did. But even when you look at things, like, you know, okay, it, do we see enough dorks in a green deck? You know, uh, is that something that we need? Do we need to add more of the green dorks? Do we need to not be on the green dorks? Does the green dork, like, if we cut a green dork, what are we putting in? Is that slot worth it? You know, is losing that man dork really going to accelerate us uh, into whatever else we're doing or offer any sort of, like, additional game plan or other avenue or something else that the deck isn't already currently providing? Um yeah, we could take a look at like trading mana dorks for low. Yeah, like that seems like it's not a one to one switch because it's two mana, two colored pips uh, versus a one mana like creature that's going to provide you constant like static mana. But Lotho is also ramp and he has the potential to provide so much more mm -hmm. and color mm -hmm. fix. So it's that's one of those things where it's like I'm slicing out a dork for Lotho here, but at the same time I'm adding in a piece of ramp. That fills a similar-ish role, and it feels so much mm -hmm. better when it works. Definitely, definitely. And especially, like, once you start, like, really dialing into a deck, you start looking at, like, okay, I feel like I have enough of this effect uh, that I can start dropping things and add more things. Maybe I need more draw engines. Maybe I need different types of interaction. Maybe I do need more dorks, for example. You know, th those kinds of things, especially with like the the lower color thing, like the two, three color decks of the world. I feel like a lot of those decks, unless you're playing like the generic partner pairings, you're playing those commanders because they enable something in particular that you think is interesting or different. Um, or the, like the support pieces around it are good and versatile and enable your command and your commander enables it very, very well. Um, that you start looking at those effects, you know, how, how many of those can we fit in? How, how many is too much, too little, all of those things you end up having to take into consideration when like either trimming your deck initially down to that hundred cards to first start testing it out, or as you kind of go through and, and start testing them, uh, you, you really figure out like, okay, um, Calamax, for example, uh, I felt like two tap effects wasn't enough. I wasn't seeing them often enough that you know three tap effects ended up being like pretty good to enable my commander it, just as like an example but those those enabler cards um i don't think you generally need to be on a lot of them unless your commander needs to be enabled all the time uh magda for example just because we were talking about magna uh recently um that card that deck needs a lot of enablers for example but i think that comes at the expense of colors, I think. I think as you get lower in colors, you end up having to play more enablers to kind of close that gap because you're not playing the good stuff, you're playing synergy, so... Yeah, because you start to see that, that fall yeah. off of, I don't get to play cards that are good, so I have to try and maximize the leverage that my individual commander provides. Absolutely, so absolutely. You end up seeing a lot more of those enablers, like you were saying. Yeah, no, 100%. So that, that ends up being like a decent factor for consideration as well. I, I think that's definitely important. 
so I, I generally have two different mindsets when it comes to like card evaluation and they're very much in like the like beginning stages and the testing stages um and then i guess there's kind of like a third like long-term one but very very few people are stick to a deck long enough that you start noticing those trends uh you, Atlas, in particular, and a couple of other uh, of our other friends have stuck to decks long enough that, like, there is kind of that like higher level, like, no, okay, I've, you can, yeah, track the, tra it. the tracking. Yeah. You have you have that history, you have that longevity to kind of look back on and be like, okay, no, like, I'm going to make the X, Y, and Z decision based off of like this pattern that really started, you know, creeping up over the course of like 50 games. I've noticed, like, hey, I really don't need all these dorks, or hey, I really need like one more removal speller i don't need that bounce spell that can be like another counter magic piece yeah those types of those types of trends it's really easy to track when when i've been on a deck mm -hmm. for so long i can say um it, it gets gets to the point where I, like i hit these really weird things where it's like all right i i have too many tutors or like i i need this specific type of effect because i keep encountering xyz scenario and i either don't have a way to capitalize on it or it's really really punishing so that's that's really beneficial like from a player's perspective from a brewer but not everyone like you were saying has the same amount mm -hmm. of time to track to track those changes or they'll bounce around between different decks and people get distracted and things like that which isn't bad because they're playing things yeah, that they absolutely enjoy, but it makes it, it can make it really challenging to focus in on the exact like minute things that need to be tweaked in each individual mm -hmm, deck. Mm -hmm. um definitely definitely and even like in those early test stages or even let, let's take a pretty generic example you know you're, you're relatively new to cdh you look at the decklist database you grab a list basically card for card where do you go from there and you know okay i need to start tweaking it to my local meta how do you do that what does that look like you know you start evaluating like okay all these generic stables are here but man like 12 counter spells really we need to be playing more. We need to be playing less. Like, I'm only on three dorks. That's too few. Or, like, how's, how's like, the fast mana looking? You know, stuff like that. All of those things you're going to figure out, like, pretty early on. Because at least that's how I end up doing it a lot of the time is, like, I I have a bunch of, like, essentially mental tracking uh, trackers that I've, I've placed on cards almost. Like, okay, you know, every single time I see this card in my hand, you know, we're going to consider it. Or uh for my deck in particular that i'm on right now because i'm a i'm a birthing pod deck my lines are such that i need to keep some amount of cards in my deck ideally i can play with cards uh if like they get drawn or get sent to the graveyard like to have lines around that so how much redundancy how many contingency plans do i need to put and that's like something specific to my deck you know um so there's a lot of individual things that i'm tracking uh, you know how many how many draw engines am I playing? Am I am I seeing them enough? Uh, my removal suite actually feels pretty good, um, so I don't feel super pressed to change that. Um, but but those kinds of things uh, as you start like growing yeah, that, towards the deck, you're going to start noticing those trends. Yeah, you mentioned um, you mentioned like when you're playing, taking note of cards that you're not sure about how you feel about them, and like trying to evaluate whether or not you'd rather have it be a different card, and that's super. Oh, very. When you're playing, is if you're considering a switch. Especially if you think that it's for a card that's weaker, um, whenever you, you don't even necessarily have to switch it right away, but whenever you draw that card, or whenever you have the option to tutor for either of those cards, think, all right, which which of these would I rather have? Mm -hmm. right now? Would I rather have like this Archivist of Ogma that I drew, or would I rather that it be um, a Grim Tutor or something yeah. like that? So 
and depending on the shell it it might it it will differ it might be that in some lists you're like man this arcos is fantastic so i can flash it in end step i can get a an attack for two and draw a card off my timna as well as have an extra draw off of the archivist itself if anyone searches and then other times you're going to be like oh man i really wish there's a grim tutor because i could just like i just cast a grim tutor and then rip my ad nauseum or my polymorph or whatever it happens to be as soon as i see the the opening so it's really just going to depend but it's a, that's a great way of testing without even without even changing mm -hmm. the list just in running that mental like would you rather game in your head and, and especially if you like you have the option for like if you're in black and you're playing like all you're playing all the basic black tutors, you're playing vamp tutor you're playing demonic tutor if your deck can afford to you're playing like diabolic intent grim tutor stuff like that where you have that freedom to be able to grab any card from your deck. So you start looking like, okay, my interaction suite, you know, do these cards end up working here? Or, you know, or maybe I need like to be on more creature tutors. You know, maybe I'm a deck that needs to be playing Enlightened Tutor, for example. Not only to get like my mana crypt, but maybe I'm playing Breach or something, or I'm on Survival, or I'm on Rule of Law effects, and I need to be able to fetch those. You know, are those effects worth putting in kind of like, those packages, so to speak, where like I have my interaction right here and it's varied enough that I can, you know, if I have the option to grab whatever, I have a pretty open suite to grab what I need for any given situation. It's just, it's just the toolbox, basically. You know, how, how good is your toolbox uh, when it comes to a lot of those things? And I, I think with any sort of tutor, my usual go-to for those like suites and whatnot is if I have a win line and then I have something to prevent someone else from winning is usually like the basic basics of toolboxing so and you you evaluate from there you know is i don't know is is running a rule of law effect worth it in my deck can i play through a rule of law uh, and your win con will also decide a lot of those things like if you're a breach deck you're probably not playing a rule of law because you're, you're the way you're winning is you're chaining together spells absolutely i know that you yourself just started uh just started when you were putting together this deck the first time you you threw it together and you played a couple games and you had like your one or two of rule of law effects in there and you realized after playing a few games that there there wasn't enough there weren't enough things for you to do you have no mana to the command zone there was nothing for you to do when your whole turn is going rule uh, is under rule of law is going like cast this mana dork or this other stacks piece maybe a tutor if you're lucky and then attack with Timna and then pass. And you have all like five mana left yeah. over. What are yeah. you gonna do with it? And now I I took that information, those scenarios, I noticed that like, okay, no, this is a trend that I'm doing. Like I'm frequently feeling like I need to find this card to create this scenario that I in theory should be better positioned to handle than my opponents. Um tangent, but the nature of playing like some amount of stacks in your deck or even playing a stacks list means that you are prepared to handle that effect better than your opponents by virtue of you having your finger on the button. Um, because I can pivot into, say, a rule of law, for example, at any given point or pretty pretty easily I can get myself into a rule of law, I need to be I need to be better prepared for that. Sure, I have win lines through it, but can I grind through? Can I, can I play the game normally enough? Can I generate advantage? Can I stop people? Can I do what I need to do continue my game plan through the rule of law effect as we're sticking to for example and that was and that was something that i noticed so what do i do with that information i look at the cards that i feel like have been underperforming or apply a slightly different effect than what i was looking for uh, i think one of the things that we 
came up with was I ended up cutting Aven Mind Sensor because if I'm in a situation where I can fetch up one of those, I'm just going to get Oppo every time. It's hard, gets it, I get information, and I and I get to create advantage from it. So apart from Aven Mind Sensor being like a really good Timna attacker because it's a 2-1 flyer, Opposition Agent's just going to... I'm going to be picking that every time. Like, it'll be cool to have it in hand, but I don't think I'm ever seeking it out, for example. Um, and when you have a higher color deck, you're going to have more tutor density, you're going to have more access to a lot of these things. Um, if you're on Breach, you're going to be considering, you know, different routes to Breach, different Breach lines, you know, how do these cards affect my graveyard, you know, these kinds of things. Like, I'm, I'm saying a lot of, like, toolbox theory because I play primarily a toolbox deck, but a lot of that idea of, like, okay, this is what my deck does, these are the scenarios that I succeed in very well, and these are the scenarios that I'm not super duper well in, kind of want to equalize those but in the favor of the areas that you succeed in at least that's how i tend to process a lot of that so i looked at the cards that i felt like were underperforming and i put in cards that i feel like would better perform so i'm on like fiend artisan and nissan cards that like i can stick out do their thing pretty pretty well but when rule law hits there are extra things that i can do so that was how i solved that issue um figured out cards i didn't like put in cards i do like it feels really simple on the surface um Man, cuts are agony, though. <laughs> Absolute agony. Oh, tell me about it. Especially when you get to, like, you get to a point where you really like all the cards oh, in your list, and you're like, man, I have to trim one of these to add this other card that I don't even know if I'm going to yeah. like that. Yeah. And the other day, uh, you would ask me, like, hey, I need to find a cut. And I looked at this, uh, and I said, I don't know a cut. Because um, usually what I started doing with your list in particular, just because we worked on it so much, is I just start throwing out the craziest suggestions I can think of. Like, yeah, let's cut. What if we cut Force of Will? You know, no, we're not asking that question. But what if we do? You know, like those kinds of things. Because that list, your list is just so tight. We've gone through everything. We've seen everything so much. We have so much like data on it. Essentially, that we're like, all these cards are too good. What do we do now? Yeah, it's a it's a really tricky spot for sure. I guess that sort of launches into a different question though. It's sort of related, but it's like so when you're looking at your lists and you're like, oh man, I really, it, it's kind of like flip, uh, looking at it like your opponent's decks. They aren't cutting this card, so what are you gonna add to deal with it, right? It's like, um, so I, so I keep running into this one problem. What this one card or that crops up everywhere? Take a uh, collector, for example. All these null rod effects. Pose good me. cards what am i gonna do how do i handle this type of effect um you have to like how, how do you determine the path that you go on because the because the way i see it there are two right you can either adjust your own strategy to sort of adapt with the meta and like shift around and like play better into that style of effect that's hosing you or that individual card that's hosing you or you can uh you can tweak the list itself to have more answers uh, and keep your primary game plan the same. I think a really a, a non-permanent based example of this would be ad nauseum, mm. right? Like if, if everyone's playing ad nauseum, you keep running into this goddamn card. How are you going to handle the fact that it keeps cropping up? Are you going to you going to add more counter magic to your list? Are you going to add additional ways to to deal damage to people, like a lightning bolt or something, because it's flexible? It can be a removal spell, or it can hurt someone on their nas theoretically even kill them after they go low or are you gonna you gonna adjust and start playing an adnos deck instead to be able to compete and keep up with the speed and consistency mm -hmm. right so i think that's something else that you have to consider is 
is how you're going to how you're going to evaluate cards that you're faced with and not just cards that you're playing yeah definitely and i feel like sticking with that adnaz example you know you start considering other options you know like can it can my deck play through its own rule of law you know that's a great answer to adnaz or if you're more creature slanted deafening silence is an option that most most adnaz decks can't beat unless they're end phasing adnaz that, that's and that's realistically it but even then if they're in in phasing adnaz into we'll stick to deafening silence here as an example you know they have to spend a removal spell to clear it so and that just opens them up to getting counter spelled and then their whole turn is thwarted basically but like and that i think yeah. that's a different way of going about it is you have like the like strict like one for one answers you know, counter spells removals stuff like that but then you also have like these hosers essentially um, these stacks effects that you can see it and you can see if you can come in. Uh, I think we talked about it a while ago, but I think being able to play very powerful like hosing effects is really, really good right now. It's really, really good, really good right now. It's why I'm on Norod and Oof. I can play through those fine. You can't. Yeah, it's one of those things where being able to jam a stacks piece is that's super impactful for your opponents and may hurt you even in the short term. Um, but you're you're positioned in a way to play through it at least mm -hmm. better than two or three of the decks at the pod. Super, super great, like you said, because it also poses this weird question to your opponents. It's like, how badly do you want this to stick around? Because it's, it's locking the other players out, right? So maybe somebody can't win through, say, a deafening silence, because that's what we've played. Um, but their opponent also can't play through it, and they... They really can't play through it. So, but you can't win through it either, and you're slowly losing to this stacks deck. Like, what are you gonna do when the other person at your end step goes and tries to like chain a vapor that deafening silence? Are you going to spend an entire counter spell to stop them from removing the deafening silence? Or are you gonna bank on the fact that you have more counter magic in your hand and you can you can counter their their adnaz or their intuition or whatever the win attempt is that's coming after the deafening silence gets passed mm. um like do you have your force of will and your pitch card and your swan song or are you banking on the fact that that your your offer and your misstep is going to get you through there and they aren't going to have um like a deflecting swat or something to push your misstep to your offer like there there are all these things to consider when you're looking at um, looking at the cards that your opponents are playing and how you're supposed to be handling those. Yep, absolutely. And and with all of those scenarios that you're that you're talking about, you look at each of those individual cards and be like, okay, well, it's really good in this scenario, but also, is it good enough generically? Um, I feel like that ends up being the name of the game for a lot of a lot of the card slots of people's deck is how wide reaching is this effect? Like, Stern Scolding is a card I I feel like I keep talking about because I think it creates a lot of interesting discussion. Like, it's a good card. It's flexible enough. It still doesn't stop an Adnaz. It still doesn't stop a Breach. It stops a lot of things, but it also doesn't stop even more things, you know? Yeah, I I, I think Stern Scolding is such an interesting mm -hmm. card. Because it's so close. It's always so right, close. It should be, it should be yeah. fantastic. And I think it is a super, super good card. I just think that like all the lists that we're saying, oh my god, this card is amazing. Like the four color lists, the five color lists, even some of the three color lists. Like you're already really limited on slots, and I'm not convinced that I would rather play scolding over just another on the other pyroblast mm -hmm. effect, or like even another two mana counter spell. Um, I just 
to my mind, it it seems like it's just it's all, it just it's, it's so close. Practice, it's so so close. Even though it's amazing mm -hmm. in theory. I it yeah. it almost feels like it's an is it card specifically because it stops oof on the stack, but at that point you you start to consider, okay, if I'm playing an is it deck, uh Name any is a deck. They all kind of fold to oof at some point or another. You know, is that stern scolding that you put in there specifically to stop the oof better or worse than something like in a braid, for example? Um, in theory, it accomplishes a near similar idea, except it also hoses no rod. Which, if you're in a deck that's losing to oof, you also want the answer that also takes care of no rod. So in that instance, you start to evaluate those you know, those things. You know, is it worth it to this, that, or the other? Uh, I guess the point in favor, like Stern Scolding, is it stops more than just the oof. Like, it stops a crucial opposition agent, it stops a Thoracle attempt, it stops a Grand Abolisher. Like, there are pluses and minuses to both sides in the scenarios, but those are the things that you need to consider because both of those cards are fighting for that slot, and they both have very, very notable pros and cons going into that slot. And that's a question you're not going to know immediately how to answer. It's also a weird thing because, like, certain types of effects you want, like, mm -hmm. one-ofs, and you'll just tear them up, right? Like, opposition or something like that. But other types of effects, like... You want to magic, magic in. You want redundant... Well, yeah, well, I was going to say, you want redundancy. You want it to be able to be, okay, well, I ripped one, and it'll counter what I need it to counter, which Stern Scolding doesn't mm -hmm. most of the time, I feel like. I feel like it's that weird spot where the moments, unless you're, like, really lucky, which I am not, uh, you rip Stern Scolding and you need to be able to counter a non-creature spell. Or somebody's putting a Grand Abolisher on the stack and you're holding Offer and you can't refuse. Like, now Offer is better because it is very wide-reaching and it's a lot. But Stern Scolding is one of those cards where, man, this card would be so good right now because I have one blue and I need to counter this spell. But it's in my 99 and I don't have redundancy on this specific style of effect because it's my one of my like maybe three or four spells that counter mm -hmm. creatures but also like force of will is not something i'm thrilled to spend countering a collector roof most of the time yeah um, yeah so that's something to consider it all i also wanted to loop back to something you said earlier about how effects are, need to be really wide reaching and i think that's really it's it's one of the reasons i i used to really like playing stacks but it's one of the reasons that in recent recent uh memory I've stopped playing stacks as much and um, just kind of like light stacks pieces in my decks instead is that I feel like the effects of stacks are are very wide reaching and they're very silver bullety, which is great. But I also think that because of the nature of stacks, especially in a singleton format, like 100 cards, you have to when you have to play like a bunch of these different silver bullet effects right like that are as a one of and then tutor for the correct one um and throw it out there with the exception of like maybe rule of law which you can just load up on because it's it slows everyone down oh yeah on some everyone stops mid-range can grind through it sure but it doesn't it still slows them down they're not having especially if you land it super early they're not landing their explosive like turn one dork turn two dork advantage engine and another dork or whatever um and so i think that it's really it's really an interesting quandary to say well i can either layer up on like the density the redundancy of like this null run effect because it's so strong and so wide-reaching 
But then if I do that, I lose a slot for a more narrow, but equally as important hate piece, like, say, I don't know, like, what is a, what is a good example? Like, uh, Torp Orb. Yeah. And I can't, I can't, I could layer up on Torp Orbs, but then I lose slots for my Null Rods. And it's like, I want to play both, so it's like, maybe I'll play, maybe I'll play a one of and a two of, and it's like, at that point, it feels like you're almost building for, like, a 60-card format, right? Where you're like, well, I'm going to try this one of, and I'm also going to try this two of this, and then uh, I'm going to throw another one of in there, and then hopefully I'll draw my tutor and be able to draw, go tutor for whatever the pieces that I don't have that I actually mm -hmm. needed. I think it's really interesting. No, definitely. And I think for a lot of those effects, like, there, there, there is absolutely, like, a maximum density number that you're looking for. I'll, again, I'll stick to I'll stick to the the oof and Norod example. I'm not on Stony Silence. I I don't need that effect. I think I think it's it, the advantages to Stony Silence is that it's a third effect that does it. That's kind of where the advantages begin and end, really. Whereas Norod, I can turn one off a of Mana Crypt or off a of Soul Ring, and Oof is fetchable through every single one of my creature tutors. And I'm on a higher density of creature tutors because I play a lot of creatures and all my creatures are good. These, these are things that my deck is naturally wanting to do. Stony Silence doesn't really fit into that category. So you you do exactly like you, what you said there. You start looking at other things. Okay, this cat this this area is pretty solid, pretty rounded out. I have access to it enough. It's it it hits everything that I need to at just the right points. It, it's in the sweet spot. We got it. We got it figured out. We could throw another one on there. Or we can figure out the next area that needs to be rounded out. You know, it do I need to be on that rule of law? That's great. Do I need to be on a second rule of law? Is this coming up enough that I want that? I want that. I want to start increasing that density there. Is this an area that we need to be increasing density for? A lot of those questions start forming at that point. Um, Counter magic is a great example. Uh, I think going back to the difference between like offer, you can't refuse and stern scolding is the easiest way to break down is this stern scolding hits one creature type of magic. Uh, offer. You can't refuse. hits every other creature type of magic. Um, that by itself gives it a substantially wider breadth of effects that, or wider breadth of breadth of things that it can hit. Um, so you have that utility there. You have that options there. Sure, there will be times when it's the only counter spell in your hand, and the grand abolisher is coming down. And you go, well, I can't stop this, but I can fight it. I can I can fight the counter magic that, that that's defending it. Yeah, somebody show yeah. me something, and I can I can try and help yeah, exactly. You. And like, but that gets into using those cards to like create different scenarios to force those things to happen is is there like any specific numbers that you look for when it comes to like density of effects that you're like this is my critical mass i don't really need to go beyond this not really i think a lot of it depends on the style of list mm -hmm. you're playing i think it depends on like what you're trying to do and from there you're trying to wait it out right so um sometimes like if i'm playing a, a control list which let's be real anyone who knows me is you're always playing control. all i play is control um uh, so I guess in that regard, I am always looking, it's like, I usually want my number of permission spells to be plus eight at mm -hmm. the lowest. So um, ranging from somewhere, depending on my colors and what I'm trying to do, how many other styles of answers I have, my permission spells should be no less than eight at any given point. Sometimes I've played decks in mono blue with permission counts as high as like 16, um, where you're just... And you're just playing a bunch of really efficient counter magic that just says, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. And then, and then if you have a draw engine in the command zone or something, then you can, uh, you can gas your hand back up. So it, you're able to play more of that style of effect. Because th those uh, responses that like are one shot and done, right? Because you can gas back up and get more of them. 
stay afloat in the game. But I think in a list that's more permanent based, um, something like Kenrith, it's like I don't want my permission count to be that to be that quite that high because if I'm playing 14 pieces of permission, that means that I'm not advancing my board state as much, um, and there are faster, more aggressive things that I can be doing that also hinder my opponents. Um, that I buy that I can do by developing permanence, and those pieces are will stay there and they will generate advantage for myself and hinder my opponents over a period of time so they can like it they may require a, a higher initial mana investment but they will pay themselves off rather quickly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And i think i think with permission and counter magic specifically i feel like a lot of the like numbers are basically figured out at this point like you're gonna play force will if you're a deck that's trying that can that wants to stop other people on their turns so you're likely playing force of negation um, if you're more controlly rather than fast, uh, you're playing Mind Break Trap. Although I think if, even if you're playing fast, you're playing Mind Break Trap because it's a free counter spell. You're always playing Pact of Negation. You're always playing. For, you're always playing Offer. You're always playing Swan Song, Fluster Storm. Like these things are figured out. And I think the the beauty with those things is sure they all read counter spell, but they all read counter spell in a different way. You know, it's it's the reason you know why we play Delay Second after Mana Drain instead of True Blue Counter Spell. It's easier to cast, and if you're in white, you're gonna have access to Dranith Magistrate, which means you're gonna lock that you're gonna lock that spelled out forever, basically. Um, or like even like the other like cuter counter magic to some degree, I guess. Uh, there there are just there are better options and more efficient options, or there are options that cover counter spells specifically in a different fundamental way. Uh, we talked about potentially dropping Flusterstorm from lists. We ultimately decided no, that's not the case. Because Flusterstorm beats every other counter spell in the format, basically. Yeah, it can. It, it, can. it has <laughs> loses to a Flusterstorm. Yeah, it's still Flusterstorm. It still doesn't stop a Breach on the stack. It still doesn't stop a hard cast like Bolas of Citadel or something, or a hard cast uh, yeah. Time Sieve, for example. Yeah, it will. It will win you. It's like mm -hmm. Mind Break Trap. It, it will win you the war if it's the last thing cast, um, assuming that there was like some fight yeah. or, or whatever, yeah. right? Otherwise it's like, it's kind mm -hmm. of meh. And I, I think in those situations, you open that conversation up to the other like counter war spells, so to speak. Uh, dispel, your mystical disputes, uh, your miscast, not mystical disputes, your miscast, those kinds of things where they're not necessarily good at like aggressively stopping your opponent, but they're really good at defending your initial response, you know? I cast this Adnaz, force a will, force your force, fluster storm the whole stack. Congratulations, you won the game. Okay, well, I have this, that, or the other. You know, you kind of go down the rabbit hole of like, well, this this counter spell is really good in the counter spell war. That's cool. That's great. I think those effects have their place, especially in like those really fast, like turbo nausey decks. Rogside, for example, like really tuned up. Anala, you know, where... The whole point of your deck is you're trying to get that one thing to resolve. So you put everything in service of getting that one thing to resolve. So again, Dispel, Miscast, those become a higher value add because you're pretty efficient at finding your Adnaz, your Breach, your, your one card that your whole deck is centered around, that you just need a density of things to protect them. Uh, that density ends up being the superpower of the deck. You just force through your one effect and be good to go. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think that having those, that f variety 
and being able to answer multiple threats with things like force of will is very important but also those those like those capstones where it's like my bridge mm-hmm. fluster storm because those are like those are the i'm never tutoring for a force of will, or almost never i should say but like i i have definitely tutored for fluster storms and even mind break trap before because i know that those are going to be super valuable here in the next coming turns right and so then it comes into like how different are they than stacks pieces really even though it's like even though they're one shot versus permanent because these i'm, I'm playing these hose the sack so incredibly well um i i'm gonna go tutor for these responses um, versus something like delay, I'm more inclined to just like, yeah, I'll draw it and it'll be, oh sweet, I have protection or a way to interact with my opponents or something like that. No, absolutely, and I think that's a, a I think that's a very critical way to look at it. Is like exactly what we're talking about. Are we fine with drawing this card, or is this a card that we're occasionally searching out? Is it good enough to search out? You know, you, you, again, you start you start that evaluating process. You start asking all these questions and start reflecting on all those scenarios where you've seen this card in this board state with you know this knowledge and all the different factors that make cdh this crazy game again your your cards in your hand have to be flexible because there's a wide variety of game states that you're going to be encountering so these cards need to be able to handle that test but again there there is some value in that variety flusterstorm might only counter two different card types but they're arguably some of the most important card types and it's also the best card at answering those card types in their given context. In most In their given context, yeah. they're going to outshine... Like, a Flusterstorm and a Counterspell War is going to beat out any Force of Will you're going to have in hand. Just straight up. The most ubiquitous Counterspell, the one that's available on turn zero, your Flusterstorm is going to beat that card in the, its given context. So, is that context happening enough for you to warrant the Flusterstorm? Is it not happening enough that you weren't dropping it, for example? You know, there's always kind of both ways you can take it, really, because you're either you're either playing the card or you're not playing the card. There's really only two ways you can play it. Win conditions. Um, I think for the most part, I always start a deck knowing what my win condition is. The moment I sit down to play a deck, the first thing I have to figure out is, okay, how is this deck winning the game? Is it, am I taking advantage of the usual suspects? Am I in... Is it? I'm playing Breach Lines. Am I in five colors? Well, I'm going to have a bit more options than I. Am I playing Nos? Am I not playing Nos? Breach? Yes? No? Thoracle? Maybe? All those things you're going to start... It's usually my first step, but I definitely think you should at some point, if you're using at least the generic ones, is there better... Do I need to increase the amount of win conditions? Am I on too many win conditions, for example? I'm, yeah, I think that's definitely, and we've talked mm-hmm. about that before, right? It's like the the optimal number of win conditions, conditions to be playing. And I think there's something to be said about asking, like, do I do I need to be playing more or less, things like that. But I think even more so is, like, even more than how many win conditions am I playing. Um, once you're starting to get into a deck and, like, tune it and tweak it, I think an even better question to start asking yourself is, is there a win condition that is more in line with what I'm trying to do? Like, is there a win yeah. condition that plays better into my overall strategy for each game? So, so for example, more mid-rangey lists, uh, they might find that um, Breach is is better or worse from them based upon what they're playing, right? It's like, you're in colors where you could be doing grinding station loops, um, but 
you're also like playing oof and combos with it so you're definitely you're definitely gonna be like i don't know well, on this condition when condition isn't that great versus something like kiki jiki is comparatively a relatively inefficient win condition hey that's my um, boy it's highly mana intensive it it requires a combat step it's like there are all these pieces that that push the combo down in in technically uh technical terms and its viability or its effectiveness but within your list it might be better because of the cards that you're playing and the the situations that you're trying to set yourself up with um trying to push yourself into those scenarios where um, you're casting like a zealous conscripts and then you're casting a kikijiki three turns later or you're resolving like a vivian and sacking a three cost to go win the game under rule of law all at the same time like the and that at that point um the win condition of breach is so much worse because of your rule of law and oof effects versus kikijiki while being technically less efficient is is within the confines of your list so much more efficient and so much more powerful than even say thoracle if there's a rule of law in play mm -hmm. right so no absolutely and i think a lot of the ways that i think about like doubling into more win conditions is, is kind of two main questions one does it layer into anything that i'm doing already i've said it before i'll say it again Layering just means you're building your deck better. That's not really a, a real term. It means you put... There, there's, like, genuine thought behind the cards that you're putting in. You have reasons and evidence to back it up to make this thing that you're doing that seems a little bit off actually really good in your list. And two, does it win in a different way? Uh, being able to win through varying levels of stacks pieces is a huge, huge boon. Um, and I think me and you both build our decks in in such manners that we try to be able to win through any given like one maybe two stacks pieces once we get to three stacks pieces on the board very few people are winning i feel like i, I that tends to be the number that i look at when i'm playing is like okay one like if i'm just if there is just a rule of law effect out i can win through that if there is just a blind obedience out i can win through that if there is just a rest and peace out i can win through that if two of them are on the board the window starts closing a little bit. If there are three on the board, I'm absolutely not winning. But also at that point, you have to recognize how likely is your opponent's going to... Like, what what win conditions are valid in the scenario where you... Combat call, exactly, combat damage. Um, but how many other, like, win conditions, like combos, are, like, viable in that scenario of, like, blind obedience, rest in peace, and rule of law? Very few? Very, very few. And you pay, maybe have to play through counter magic or onboard tricks or whatnot. Eh, dicey. Dicey, dicey. Blind obedience, rest in peace, and... Yeah, that's a pretty on. comprehensive setup. Now you got me Yeah, thinking. no, it's a, it's a really good puzzle. It's a very, very good puzzle. Yeah, I'm going to be thinking about that one yeah. tomorrow. Got to see if I can come up with something that wins. Oh, there's, and then there's, a gra there's a known graph digger's cage that's going to be coming down too. Just keep that in mind. But like, it, you, you, you look at those scenarios where... I, I, unless your deck hard folds to one specific card, Dranith Magistrate, Collector Oof, Rest in Peace, those tend to be the biggest ones that your deck needs to be able to play through or have game plans around, be that grinding, be that other win conditions, be that, cool, I'm going to, my deck naturally plays a lot of big guys, I'm going to start punching you, and you're going to die. Those effects are no longer going to be in the game when you're alive. Um, to... 
you, you build your deck in such a way that you can play through those effects. I, I feel like once you get to the point where like two stacks pieces are on the board, you start shutting down a lot of options and it's not just you. A lot of other decks that you're going to build that are good, that are try test and true are not going to play through it. In that example, blue farm has a hard time winning through all three of those stacks pieces on the board. Your Kenrith list. Yeah, but you know what they got? A four, four with exactly. Five. That's your win condition that we've located <laughs> at that point. Um, yeah, no, that's, I feel like that's why me and you were on creep. They got a six-turn clock, six turn on clock you. baby. That's what they got. Six-turn clock. But you, you start looking at those options, and especially if you're like a hard, dedicated stacks list. That's why a lot of them are on like the big, the big dingus dudes. That's cool. I'm gonna be locked under every stacks effect in the world. I'm, I'm gonna put a tender shoe dry it out. I'm gonna start making three threes. I'm gonna start punching you. Yeah, and at that point, you have your opponents are stuck with the. You're just giving them a, a terrible choice of. All right, well, do I answer the Tender Shoot Giant, which is technically the correct thing to do, but if I do that, I don't have a removal spell for this stacks piece, and I don't know if I'll ever be mm -hmm. able to remove it. And that's just a, that's just a it's rough It's a very spot rough spot, or even if, like, depending on how the politics of the game go, you know, can I hide behind someone else? Do I feel like someone else is ready to go for the win? I can wait for their fail attempt, clean up what they tried to remove that they needed to get rid of to try and force a win because they got stopped, and can I get across the finish line? You know, th those kind of deals. Yeah. Long story short, though, is don't let tr dedicated sacks list lists get a grip no, on the no. game because if you do, you're not no. gonna win. No. <laughs> you just no. Win. You gotta make sure that you gotta make sure that you like they can let them resolve like one, maybe two, maybe even three, but you just never let them resolve that fourth ever. And you just gotta make sure that you keep them in check because because this is something that I've noticed is is people the there are two two schools of thought right it's like all right i'm not gonna let them resolve any stacks pieces which isn't necessarily great because those can start on your opponents as well or i'm gonna make sure i'm gonna be fine with them resolving every stacks piece and then i'll i'll deal with it later and both are problems um especially when like a lot of like a lot of these pieces are wide reaching or if they go to resolve a, a a card that is a silver bullet against your list like if someone's if you're playing the get rock monster and someone resolves a dothy against you like or a rest in peace like, that's 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 brutal, brutal right that's, so you gotta you gotta be really careful walking that line and then you get into once again the politics of it where you really can't afford to see this rest in peace in play but also your opponents really want this rest in peace to stay because it hoses you so badly and it only kind of affects them so at that point you got like this they have that weird spot where once again you got to figure out how to eh, is it is it worth it to is it worth it to to counter your counter spell or but just save it and wait and then just try and hope that you don't have enough protection for your win attempt, yeah, right absolutely so, just a uh, weird thing in I want to stick on this tangent because I, I'm, I'm just curious in in the scenarios where the board's starting to get stacked out you, you kill the value engine. You kill the like big creature maker, whatever you, the tender shoot drive, the the draw engine. You 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 stop the sax player from developing literally anything, and you also keep them locked under there, right? That's 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 the usual play. I think it just depends on the yeah. situation, right? So so like I had a, a really good example of this in a game the other day. Actually, is um, we were I was playing against a Jetmere list, and um, I had a Ristic study in play, and my opponent also had a Ristic study in play. And then my other opponent, who wasn't the Jetmere player, also had like a pretty sizable board with, with a bunch of three X's. And um, 
they the the really the really hard situation i'm faced with here is that if i keep doing stuff to like beat up the jetmir's board to make sure that they don't get too out of hand i'm losing opportunities to interact with the thrasios mm. desk the thrasios deck that has a ristic study which is really bad uh for me um and uh like the three the three x's aren't super like they're too concerning currently me, right? but i'm also letting my other opponent just run unchecked um and because i'm spending all my resources on jetmir and dargo and so now i i'm gonna be letting them go unpoliced so it's it's one of those tricky situations but in general um and i think this is one of the things hard things that i have communicated uh, one of the things I have a difficult time communicating to other players um, when a deck like Jetmir that is a hard hard stacks list or Winota that is a a relatively hard stacks list but it's pretty snowball-y if it's not not super duper stacks heavy um, the thing that I have trouble communicating to others sometimes is that there the moment that you have to interact with these decks comes long before you think you have to 100%. with these decks. 100%. Or what's a, another good, really good example is uh, Krakashima. Um, the opportunity to interact with Krakashima is when Sakashima is on the stack or before. If Sakashima hits the table, the odds that you're going to win the game drop exponentially. Um, and, so, and so it doesn't matter how much somebody whines and says no my crack isn't the threat like why are you killing this when you could kill the grand abolisher over there i mean obviously yeah, that, like, that's you have to take everything and tough. wait it in this you have to wait everything within the, its context but on the whole if it's not the grand abolisher players kill turn, the crack. which it can't be because you're about to kill something you I'm still probably going to kill the Quark 90% of the time because I know that there is a higher chance that the Quark player is also going to want that Grand Abolisher dead. And I have another opponent to 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 ask for help to deal with the Grand Abolisher as well because they don't want us to sit around. But that Quark has to go because if the Sakashima lands afterwards, I'm probably not winning the game to the same effect that the Grand, that the Grand Abolisher itself mm -hmm. would have. Uh, so you have to interact earlier than you think you do a lot of times with those decks that that build up board presences um running back to jetmere same thing right it's uh you have to interact with jetmere before like if you're like oh it's not really that much of an issue until they cast jetmere you're wrong very wrong <laughs> that you have to interact with jetmere like let them establish like their rule of law or maybe a thalia effect depending on what your list is maybe a a null run effect depending on what your list is but you aren't you cannot allow a list like that to be like, oh yeah, I'll play my mom or I'll play my Asper Sentinel or I'll play this or that because then those pieces are going to start, they're going to run away with the game because no one's going to care about them. They're just going to be ignored as everyone else is trying to pop off and win the game. Uh, and then seven turns later, once everyone's burned out of resources, they're going to say, well, you still can't win the game because of all these snacks pieces that are just sitting around here. I'll cast Jet Mirror and go to combat. The game is now just over. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And in those in those scenarios where you're looking at these things, again, you can keep in mind like, okay, I think I have an opportunity here. I have this lightning bolt, for example. Um, you know, is this lightning bolt good here? Is should this should the spot be something else? Would would something else here have saved 
save save me in the situation uh, either in terms of like prolonging the game giving yourself more time or creating that window for you again like all we, we tangented a, a little bit but a lot of these you can pull back into the card evaluation because you're still going to have cards in hand you're still going to have resources ideally you're still going to be an active player in the game you're still going to be able to do stuff the thing is that you do you have to account for these Absolutely. You, have, you have to account yeah. for these situations and flip side of that if you're in a turbo pod, you're going to need to consider those things. Lightning Bolt might not be the best if you're seeing a lot of turbo, again, for example. And a lot of these things... Lightning Bolt might be, might not be the best if you're seeing exactly. a lot of stacks. Like, you have to consider what's yeah. this going to hit that's, that I'm actually worried about. And once again, it comes back to what are you playing in these pods and how much are you seeing it? If you're seeing a lot of, like, a lot of, like, green-white stacks core decks, um, Bolt's not very good. Like, it's just not going to kill a lot of the things that you need it to kill because they're either going to be enchantments where they're going to be x force yeah. and Bolt doesn't handle no, that. No, it, it really doesn't. So you're going to need some sort of sweeper or like rem exile removal, something like that. I had something to relate to like sweepers versus board wipes that I was thinking of earlier, and it, 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 escaped, it escaped me entirely. Oh, uh, and instead of stacks pieces, I, I've generally preferred hosers for the most part because I feel like stacks pieces is very much asymmetrical. Hosers is like, I'm, I'm spraying the hose. Like I'm dousing everybody i'm not getting i'm not getting hit with the splash <laughs> on it uh so like it, the, it's basically asymmetrical stacks pieces but like the asymmetrical stacks pieces that are also symmetrical but your deck is built in such a way that you don't really care about them all like that's like, a fun oof, term. or or like, like why hosers hosers is and like hosing effects like that's that's been a term that's been around for a while but i i feel like it's it's can't go saying that in Canada. yeah <laughs> uh, but i i feel like it's it's inappropriate like distinguish here that we made in like the board wipes versus sweepers distinction because I feel like if you can play hosers, just play them. You know, if your deck can afford the sacks pieces, play them as well. Um, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. If if it hinders everybody else and you don't care about it, that's generally a good effect to run. You should figure out where you need to find slots for that. For example, um, and in in that, like again, you invite the whole conversation. You know, you can. You can bring the uh, the whole counterspell uh, talk that we were talking earlier into that conversation of like, okay, I have enough of, you know, actually I think, no, we, we kind of talked about this, you know, you have enough of these effects, is there more we can run out? Again, it, these are a lot of like what I would say, like the, the journal building blocks to figuring out whether these cards are worth it in your deck. Because uh, ultimately you can only play 99 or 98 cards in your main board. That's a, that's a hard fixed limit. So that means you have to put the micro you have to put the microscope on, you have to put the magnifying glass and really figure out, okay, is this card worth it? Is there something else we can be playing in this spot? Do I need to speed up? Do I need to slow down? Do I need to grind more? Do I need to answer more? Do I need to provide questions? Do I need to ask questions more in terms of like my own threats or whatnot? You know, your win conditions, are they varied enough? All all of these things. Um I feel like once you start working on a deck or you really find a deck, you really have a groove with it. Those are the questions you're going to start answer asking yourself. And that's kind of, you know, the process as it were, at least through my eyes anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I agree with that totally. And I love the term. I think it's, I think it's a very, it's a notable distinction. No, 100%. 100%. All right. Well, I, I think I evaluate myself as pretty tapped down on this subject. Um, feel like I'm just going to start repeating the same stuff, which I can repeat the same stuff. I don't know if everyone else wants to listen to me repeat the same stuff forever, but that's where the repeat button is. Now, Alice, you got anything else you need to add? I'm all good. All righty. 
Well, I want to thank everybody for coming down to Man on the Rocks. Uh, always a pleasure to be here with you, Atlas, and talking the talk, walking the walk. Um, to our listeners, thank you for sticking around with us. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>